morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. Brought your lick of fire this morning. 
Amen. We're just going to enter right in. Not going to take up too much time. Amen. We just want to praise God. Amen. want to make way and room for the Word of God. Amen. I believe that's the most important thing that any of us could desire. Amen. Is to hear God's Word. Amen. But right now, we just want to praise Him and lift Him up with a few songs. Amen. I hope you'll join with me. Key of G, please. Let's sing the song, Here We Are in His Presence. Here we are in His presence, lifting holy hands to Oh, from his throne. 
10,000 reasons. Amen. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul. I worship your holy name And the sun comes up It's a new day dawning And it's time to sing your song again Whatever may pass And whatever lies Let me be singing when the evening comes. Oh, bless the Lord, oh, my soul, oh, my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never I worship your holy name. 
Shout to the Lord. Amen. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you in all of my days. I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love and my comfort my shelter tower of refuge and strength let every breath all that I am 
special needs before the Lord and I'm going to ask Brother Andy Irish if he would make his way to the front to take these needs. Amen. We have a prayer request for Brother Troy and Sister Connie. Uh, They're not able to be here today if you'd remember them in prayer. And also if you'd remember Brother Peter Coffey in prayer. He had to work today. 
Brother Matt and Sister Melody are traveling, and we want to keep them in prayer. I think they're in Florida at this time. Uh, keep uh, Brother Stephen and Sister Sarah in prayer. He is in Virginia. And also the McGarry family are in Washington. I think Brother Aaron is ministering at Brother Mike Wall's church. So let's remember him in prayer. I know there will be a blessing up there. And there's certainly a blessing here, and we miss them. Amen. Uh, remember Brother Tom in prayer. He's recovering, doing much better. Every day he's getting stronger from his surgery. So we just want to keep him in prayer. God would heal him quickly and bring him back to our assembly. Amen. Uh, keep Brother Ron Spencer in your prayers. Um, also, Brother Ron Peterson and Brother Tim Hayden are doing much better. They're recovering from the virus that's going around. Keep them in your prayers. Amen. That's all I have at this time. If you have unspoken prayer requests, you can make those known. Amen. We'll be praying with you. Precious Lord Jesus, stand at your feet, Father, your little bride, Lord. And just humbly ask, Father, that you'd forgive us, Lord. We've done anything wrong, Father, in your sight. We ask, Lord, that you would just forgive us. And not only that, Lord, help us not to do those things that grieve you, Father, that you're displeased with. And Lord, we approach you through the blood. We approach you through the sacrifice that you made for us. Lord, if it wasn't for that sacrifice, Father, we wouldn't be standing here, Lord Jesus, today. And so, Father, we ask on behalf of these prayer requests, Lord Jesus, that have been lifted up and been made known to you, Father. I lay my hand upon this piece of paper where they've been written down, Father. Lord, it represents your hand. And so, Father, I ask that the great physician would draw near to those that need a touch, Father. Those that need a victory in the physical realm, Father. Lord, those that need a victory in the spiritual or emotional realm, Father, may You rise with healing in Your wings and give them the victory over those things that beset them, Father. And Lord, we'll give You the glory and the praise that is so due to You, Father. And Lord, as we change the order of the service and as the man of God gets behind this pulpit, Lord, we just ask that You just pour Yourself into Him Lord, that it would be Your mind, not our pastor's mind, not Brother Barry's mind, but the very mind of our husband. And that You would speak to us today, Father, from lip to ear. Make every heart able to receive Your Word, that it may go forth, and it would not return unto Thee void. And Father, we ask it all in the precious and most holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Brother Andy, you can have your seats. Let's continue in that mode of worship. We'll sing that song you're playing, Sister Becky. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord, right now. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. Right 
Daily 
worship from afar. Draw me near to where you are. Oh, I just want to pastor to come at this time. Amen. Just pray that you can enter in. Just let go of whatever may be troubling you. Whatever shadows of doubt or fear you may be going through. Anxiety, stress. Let's just let it all go at this time. Amen. Push all those thoughts aside. The things of life that you've got to deal with. All that stuff will be there. Amen. But we just want to take advantage of this time. Amen. And let God deal with your heart and soul. Man, let's sing the song. I sing praises to your name as our pastor makes his way forward. Amen. I sing praises to your name. Oh, Lord. Real sincere now.
place today, just sensing your presence among us, Lord. Father, we're all surrounded by the continuous darkness, Lord, of this sickness that has invaded our world with all of the other ramifications and consequences of it, Lord. And we curse that sickness in the name of Jesus Christ. We stand against it, Lord, because we know it has not come from you. And Lord Jesus, we stand together now today, Lord, in this sanctuary of peace and ask that you would just come, Lord, I pray, in a special way. And Lord, we're asking that you would do great things on behalf of your people. We all have different difficulties and problems, differences. Lord, may every one of us today, every one of us, lay them aside and just let you come, Lord, and breathe upon us. May your presence be a welcome thing here today. And Lord, may you just welcome the invitation of your people to stop and to minister to each one. Lord, to heal sickness. Lord, to encourage the discouraged. And to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to every heart and every soul. Lord, we love you today. We just want to reflect your presence among us. And Lord, we want you just to be very real in every heart. Have your way, Lord, is our prayer. Have your way among us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. One more time. It sounds so nice. I sing praises to your name. Praises to your name. Oh, Lord. Name is great and greatly to be praised. I sing praises. be seated this morning just for a few moments, and we welcome all of you to the house of the Lord today. It is certainly an honor to have you with us, and uh, we are glad for each and every one of you here today. Uh, we, uh, I just have a lot on my plate here today, and I just, just want to get a few things uh, out of the way. Thank you, musicians. That'll be just fine. We appreciate you being here today. And uh, share a couple of things very quickly here with you. I neglected to mention, Brother Massachusetts for a couple of weeks with his family for his birthday and for vacation time. Uh, June 6th, Sister Danielle Swafford and Isaac Clayville celebrate their birthday. Isaac? How old are you going to be on your birthday? Three, he's saying three years old. Then he came up with another finger. God bless you, Isaac. July 7th is Haven Pritchard's birthday. Haven Pritchard, how old is Haven going to be? Four years old. God bless you, Haven. Good to have you here with us today. 
July 8th, Wednesday, is the anniversary of my wife and I. And uh, just wanted to say we appreciate her very much. Just stepped out for a moment here and appreciate Sister Becky very much. Also, Julian Ivy's birthday as well. Julian's not here today, so we want to wish him a happy birthday on the 8th. Uh, Sister Sherry Holly on July 9th, and then, of course, uh, July 10th, and this happens every year um, because birthdays happen every year, uh, Wakas uh, Javed's birthday. And um, Wakas is a, that's a, a, a kind of a red-letter day for us because of uh, every birthday is a milestone for him uh, after he was operated on when he was four years old and uh, had the heart problem, and uh, that was corrected uh, four years old, and uh, just been growing ever since. Hasn't stopped. Hasn't even slowed down. And uh, so we wish Wakas happy birthday. The Javeds very regularly listen on Sunday morning, so we wish him the best. Uh, I had a couple more photographs here that uh, Brother Mwanza sent us from uh, Zambia, and this again is in that area where uh, they're now taking advantage of having the new books and they're sending, uh, sending them out into um, some of the areas that they never get to visit. So this is kind of a unique opportunity for them, and they're taking advantage of, of, of this. They, uh, they got to forge rivers. This is on a, a river boat, and uh, they're traveling around in that, um, in that jungle area of of uh, Zambia and the Bemba-speaking region. He writes these words, These photos show the people who came to our evangelistic meeting, and our time was short. Lord willing, we will have to go back and have three days meeting with many, uh, three days meeting expecting that many will be baptized and fellowship will start. It is the first time for these people to hear the message. I think that's wonderful uh, that they're able to go into these new areas and preach the message for the first time. And they welcomed us with all their hearts. It's in the jungle area in a village called Boise. And uh, it's, it's just wonderful. He sent me a, a few more pictures here. Just let me grab a couple of more here for you. And uh, these are people who, uh, never having heard the message before or have a very uh, limited understanding <clears throat> of the message and came together when uh, Brother Mons and his crew came in there and uh, gathered in their place. And uh, they're... Their fellowship, uh, their area is very primitive for sure. And uh, this is uh, Brother Mwanza who's praying for some people. And uh, there was, um, he said, quite a stir uh, among the people over there. So we're very thankful for that. Very thankful for his work. <clears throat> um, just a couple of prayer requests here before we uh, turn to the word this morning. Uh, wanted to say that we had a great report from Brother Tim Pruitt. He sent me a note this morning and saying that his wife, uh, who had brain surgery because of the brain bleed that she had, uh, is doing very well, and uh, they're very thankful for her progress and her, uh, her continued recovery. She's still in the hospital, but she's improving uh, just about every day. Also as well, Sister Hannah Whitlock is not here today, and we want to remember Sister Hannah in prayer. Also, the, the Hugheses are not here, and we want to remember their son, Eric, who had a heart attack just a, a little while ago, and he and his wife both tested positive uh, for the COVID virus. Uh, Brother uh, Troy and Sister Connie were not around them, uh, but they are staying home today, and uh, we sure want to hold them up in prayer. It's certainly a great um, burden for them. Also as well, uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to honor our graduates 
Uh, and uh, we've got three graduates who are uh, moving on this year, so we want to honor them. And also we're going to have a little gift for our mothers. So it's a delayed Mother's Day uh, reaction for next Sunday and for our graduates. So Lord willing, that's what we're going to uh, be doing next week. Good to have Austin and Taylor here uh, today. And, uh, and all of you, great to have you with us. Let's uh, stand to our feet this morning. And just as we look to him in the reading of the word, I'm going to ask you to go to Romans chapter 8. Very familiar little passage. And... Uh, Read there. We want to take a, just a, a moment to speak to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to this part of the service now, we just ask that you would just move in and, Lord, take over. Only you, Lord, can quicken the word, and only you can make it real to our hearts. And so we just ask that you would just move on the scene, Lord, and just speak to us. Give us your strength and give us your touch, we pray. And bring healing and the ministry of the needs of your people, Lord. We bring them before you and ask that you would just minister to each and every one. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people of God said, Amen. Amen. All right. So let's look in uh, Romans chapter 8 and we'll, we'll start here. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated in the presence of Christ. Now, if you can bear with me, I want to deal with this subject of fatherhood again and the the image of a father and uh, maybe expand a little bit on the whole whole thought and whole principle and then obviously as we begin to Uh, talk about this subject here this morning, you can see the importance or the value uh, of this particular subject. So this is not just about uh, fathers providing and fathers being a mentor in their family. That's important. That's essential. Uh, But there's there's more to this whole subject here. There's more to this whole whole idea of father that I think is worth noting. And so bear with me as we as we look at this. And I appreciate your uh, your comments, always appreciate your feedback and the, uh, you know, the, uh, the stuff that uh, you say during the week there. And I appreciate you saying, telling me at least only the good stuff. But let me just pick up on, on last Sunday morning where we left off. And we were talking about this, this particular Bible verse here. That if any provide not for his own. And the word provide is that idea of uh, looking ahead uh, to perceive the needs of, of a family, even though the need is not particularly present. And so the idea that uh, Paul conveys here is that uh, not only does a man have a literal responsibility to provide food and shelter and raiment and all the things that uh, are within his power to do for his family, 
the evangelization of his, of his family is also a critical thing, to provide good things. And when we say good things, we're talking about the things that are edifying, the things that are going to bless his family. A man is responsible to provide those things for his own, especially those of his own household. And if he doesn't do that, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel, which are very serious words. It's very seldom that Paul even uses a phrase this strong in all of the New Testament. And uh, so it's an important thing. And we talked about that, that verse on last Sunday, and I, I want to just jump over here and pick up where we left off uh, just for a moment, and then we're going to veer off uh, into some other things here this morning. And uh, in Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, in 1952, Brother Branham makes this statement about fatherhood, and he said it's an attribute of God. The actual, the actual ability to father and to act as a father is an attribute of God. So when we see that displayed in men, when we see that displayed uh, in, in human beings today, it is an actual reflection of Father God and how he wanted to convey himself and how he wanted to be. And this was the relationship that he wanted to have uh, first on display with Adam and Eve. So first, as we know in the literal sense, he was a creator. But the creation never knew he was a creator until after they were created, right? Because if you're not created, you don't know a creator yet. Are we Okay. But then when God established everything and put Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, you know, the the relationship was as a father to Adam and Eve, right? And that's the way that he, that's the way he presented himself to them. So from the very beginning, this was something that was very important to God. And he said, then if we be God's children and God wants us to love one another, and in doing so, we love God. So these, these statements are actually related here, that fatherhood is an attribute of God and that we love one another, we love God. Because whenever we display an attribute that is in God, we are reflecting who our true Father is. And so whether it's fatherhood, or whether it's love, or whether it's forgiveness, or compassion, then those are attributes of the one who created us. There's something about Him that's in us that goes on display, and that's an important thing. Fatherhood is one of those things. Can you say amen? And so, uh, in the... In the message, things that are to be, and this is where Brother Branham really uh, talks very specifically about this whole idea of uh, his, his sons that are, are, are genes of the Father. Uh, they, they come from him. There's only one form of eternal life. And this is really an important thing for us to understand. I think we do. We've mentioned it many times. That was, that was God. There's only one form of eternal life. And eternal life never begins. And to be a son of God, you had to be in him always. The gene of your spiritual life was in God, the Father, before there was even a molecule, and you're nothing but the manifestation of the gene of life that was in God as a son of God. So we've got two boys over here that are an expression of the genes that were in the Father. You need to pray for that Father, for sure. But that's, that's, what, they, that's what they are. And he could not fellowship with them until they were expressed. The difference between us and God as fathers is that God could know them before they were expressed. And he could see them, describe them, photograph them, file their picture away. And uh, it was the first cloud, I guess, where God stored all of his pictures. And uh, he could store it and, and preserve it and make sure it gets reproduced in the earth. God could do that. Only God could do that. And so there was a, an element, and I need you to think about this and just hold on to it. There was an element about how they looked naturally that God wanted to capture 
And there was an element about them spiritually that God wants us, that God wanted to capture as well. I need you to think about this now for a moment. There is, there is a, there's a connection. There's a connection between us and God spiritually if we're the father spiritual gene. But it is not only a natural, a spiritual connection. There's a natural connection as well. Now hang on to that thought. Now, you're expressed after his word was coming to you to light up this age, and you were expressing God's life in you because you are a son or a daughter of God. So that's what we were saying just in the previous quote here, that, that fatherhood is an attribute that's in God, just like love is an attribute that's in God. And when we express that, we're expressing the attributes of the Father, right? And this is what he's saying. Now, you're expressed after his word, uh, after his word has come in you, to light up this age. You're expressing God's life in you because you are a son or a daughter of God and you're expressing in, you're, you're sitting in this church because your duty is to express God, uh, to this nation and to this neighborhood where you associate. So God had to bring the gospel to you. He had to bring, He had to bring you to a place where you could hear His voice so that something in you could come alive so that you could express the attributes of your heavenly father, your real heavenly father. Your only heavenly father, right? Because you only have one heavenly father. But God had, God had to bring you through a process to get you to that place where you could express the, the love of Christ, the fatherhood of Christ, the compassion of Christ, uh, you know, the joy of Christ. All of those things God had to bring you to a place where the word would get a hold of your life. And that seed of God that was in you could be quickened and made alive. And then you could express the living God in a dying world. God designed it that way. And, and he wanted you to live in this age. And God, God made a, uh, a particular message. God produced a message for this age that uh, his, his elect would come in contact with. And they would believe, they would embrace, and they would walk in, and they would manifest everything that laid within that message for this hour. Right? God did that. Because there was a, a message for this age, and there was a, a reason that God, uh, that, that God wanted you here. Uh, this is not a message that would apply or be successful in any other age. This is the age that God wanted you to be, and this is the message that God wanted you to hear. And this message is intended to produce something very specific in your life to combat the, the, all the evils of this age, but also to attain to all the benefits and the promises of this age. So it's not just your ability to defend and defeat. It is also your, your opportunity to embrace and believe everything that God has given for this age. Are we okay? So it, it's not just a defensive thing. It is also the offensive thing whereby we apprehend everything that God has for us in this hour. So God laid things in there for us to be careful about, and God laid things in this, in this time for us to actually apprehend or to grasp. And to enjoy. And God wired you for that. We are all wired differently. You know, we could say that through the ages we're all wired differently. Just like in a family we're, we're wired differently. Like men and women are wired differently. Uh, I, you know, I, uh, as a man I, I react differently about things than my wife does. And, and I'm just saying this in general. Um, she'll, she'll cry about things that I don't cry about. And, and she'll, uh, respond in times of trauma or stress uh, differently than I will. I'm, I'm more like a Marine. Well, hey, listen, let's roll up our sleeves and get it done. And, and with, with uh, a woman, you know, she likes to talk about it. She likes to, 
Even if nothing gets done, she likes to talk about it and tell people about it and discuss it and everything else. And I'm, I'm just kind of sitting there tapping my foot and saying, all right, let's do it. And I, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that. But as a, as a man, my, my response is different than a woman's response is. And that's just because we're wired differently. I think when we get over on the other side and we get down through the, uh, down through the ages and we all get to sit together and fellowship together, you know, we'll share experiences and tell stories about, uh, what we went through and what happened and you'll be the people that will witness about, you know, the, the end time events and the squeeze. How many of you feel a little squeezed these days? And, and, and you'll be able to describe that and all the way down right to the time when our bodies are changed and we're taken out like Enoch. And you'll have other people that will, that will have trouble relating to that, uh, but they'll talk to you about uh, going, uh, going through a martyr's death. And, and you'll, you know, you'll look at that and say, wow, I wasn't wired that way. I didn't, I didn't have to watch that. I didn't have to watch my family go through that. Uh, I didn't have to experience that kind of a, a, a you know, a, a, a death or an end of life. I didn't have to do that. And, and yet the people who, who go, have gone through that, they're, they're wired, they're built for certain things. And we are built for certain things in our day. And that's not your design, that's God's design. That's our Father who made us a certain way to respond to a certain condition that we live in. That's what God, that's what, that's the way God planned it. That, he didn't give you a vote on that. He, he planned it that way and allowed you to be here in this time. Now, he says that, uh, you would be here and you would have, uh, because you'd be one of his genes or his attributes and God, before there was a world, knew you would be here. And when the word or the washing of the water by the word fell upon you, it was expressed in a being. And now you have fellowship with your father, uh, God, just as you have fellowship with your earthly father, your sons and daughters of the living God, uh, if it be that eternal life dwells in you. And so that's who we are. And I'm glad we have statements that are as definitive as this. And I'll show you some scriptures that are definitive as well. But as we have said last Sunday, and I want to just uh, illustrate this a little bit and just talk uh, just briefly about it, is that our society, our culture has changed. And when it comes to the ideas or the definitions of uh, what is moral and what is uh, appropriate and what is normal, what is sensible, uh, the definitions of all of those things now are, seem to be up for grabs. They seem to be definable terms. What was not, you know, in a sense, uh, what was pretty, pretty straightforward is not, not so straightforward anymore. When you talk about family, just the idea of, of the word family, it means one thing to us, it's mean one thing for generations and generations back. And now all of a sudden family has new meaning. Not better meaning, I mean it has new meaning. And, and so there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of changes that go on in our society. We are, in a sense, I believe, the last wall or the last foothold of defense for those things that are biblical and moral and acceptable in the eyes of God. And when I say we, I, I believe that the people who, who associate and people who are members of the Bride of Christ, that's what I'm referring to, but also there are many good people out there as well who would agree with Bible principles on subjects like this. And in 1965, there were nine weddings for every ten funerals. That's the way uh, it was. This, this survey was calculated or tabulated. And then in two, 2017, there were 3.7 Weddings for every ten funerals. 
And that's quite a dramatic shift. And statisticians who, and people who study things like this will tell you that that is a really profound range of difference here uh, when it comes to uh, looking at this outcome. And so something's changed. Something's changed, and I believe that Satan is, is one who is a, a planner. He doesn't always rush at things, but he, he, he sets things in motion. And, of course, that we, we know that in the 60s there were great and profound changes within our society. And I will tell you that none of it, none of it, uh, was intended to move people towards the kingdom of heaven. None of it. We can see now that, that there were things set in motion and there were things allowed or permitted in our society that should have gotten stopped back there that were not. Brother Manham said a lot of it was a lack of voice on behalf of righteous people and ministers who should have cried out when they tried to take prayer out of school and tried to do things like that. He said there was a lacking of that. There was a lacking of people who, he, he said, where are the people like John the Baptist crying in the wilderness? Brother Branham tried to do it from his own pulpit and to try to warn people about the things that were coming. And they would proceed, they would continue, not in a, not in a dramatic overnight uh, way, but they would, they would continue over time. So now that there's a lot of things in our society that people don't even think about, they don't even debate about. And, and they don't even, they don't even discuss anymore. It's not an election issue anymore because it's, you know, uh, the definition of marriage where it's just a man and a woman. That's not even debated anymore in, in, in election politics, right? It, it's not a question anymore because it's something that's become accepted and the Supreme Court has passed laws defending it. And so therefore, it's a, in a sense, it's a mood issue. Does it, does that make it right? No, it doesn't make it right at all. But, but that's what's happened over time. So there have been things sown. There have been things put in place. There have been things that have, that have evolved in our society uh, which have changed some of these basic fundamental truths that are found in the Bible. And I say this, that I believe that we are one of the last lines of defense for the things that are right, moral, and acceptable to God, things that are biblical and things the way that God created it. You may think that that's old-fashioned, but I still think it's very true. I think the Bible is very true, and I think it's acceptable to God. And if I'm going to go out on a rail, I'll go out on a rail believing God and holding my Bible and, uh, you know, singing Amazing Grace all the way into glory. That's the way I'll go out. And I trust that you will, too. But I will tell you something, that the people who live in this extreme are people who are in the minority, when as one time we used to be in more of a majority, now we are certainly in a minority in our time. To the point where we had to be even careful about what we say because we stream now on the internet. And it would not at all surprise me that we would come to the place where we would not be able to publicly stream our sermons and put them out there because of people listening for hate speech and all the other things that are there and anything that they could use against us to try to shut us down in whatever way they can. And remember, the motive is not a political motive. The motive is more a spiritual one because it's always been Satan's tactic to try to attack the bride of Christ. And try to get him in whatever way he possibly can. So it would not surprise me at all to we come to the place where, uh, as Brother Branham said, we could lose our church and we could lose the freedom to be able to do this. Uh, and, and I think it's important for us, though, while we still have voice and while I still have an audience for us to talk about uh, things that make for peace and things that prepare you for the kingdom that we're moving to. None of this is a surprise to God. None of this is something that, uh, you know, God is unaware of. He knew. He built us for this age. I just read it for you. He made us for this age. He wired us for this age. He predestinated us for this age. He gave us a message for this age. 
right? He allowed the conditions to exist for this age. In a sense, it's a fixed fight. You know, God already, God set it up and then put people who are going to be overcomers right in the middle of it and said, have at it, but I know who's going to win. Have at it. Go ahead and fight, but I know who's going to win. Aren't you glad you're, you're serving that kind of a father who, who, who doesn't just throw you to the lion's den and hope that you make it out. Uh, he's one who knew what the outcome would be even before you got into the fight. And that's the kind of God that we serve. And this is what, uh, this is what we're talking about today. And a, a father who, who cares about us that much. So very briefly, and this was uh, an article that, as I said last Sunday, this is an article that caught my attention in the largest Christian publication that there is in our country today. That's the left. I think there's only a handful of them left anymore, like Christian bookstores. Remember them? And out of this article, it says that marriage, even in the minds of most Christians, is now perceived as a capstone that marks a successful adult, young adult life, not the foundational hallmark into adulthood. So back years ago, uh, back before things got twisted, uh, a couple would get married. It didn't matter how much money they had. It didn't matter uh, whether they had established careers. It didn't matter whether they had their house paid for, if they had a BMW each in the driveway. Uh, it only mattered that they were following the leading of the Lord, and they loved one another, and it was appropriate for them to get married. That's, those were the factors that mattered. But but things have changed now. They look at now, now uh, you know, the millennials and the people in that. Listen, if you're a millennial here, I think, listen, I, I, I got to apologize. I think there is salvation for, for you millennials that are here. And I think you can be in the rapture and all of that. I'm just talking about the yuppie, uh, semi-communist, tree-hugging, Nancy Pelosi-loving people who are out, you know, out there and... They've changed everything in Birkenstock wearing Volvo driving people. You know, listen, you know who I'm talking about, right? But for you people, I believe there's grace still. There's mercy still for believing millennials. I do. And Gen Xers and all the other categories that are out there. But today there's, as, as this article describes, there's been a change in kind of priority. And, and part of that breakdown of establishing that priority is, uh, is, is a failure of the pulpit. And, and Brother Branham described, he described instances of the failure of pulpit, why there was so much worldliness in the church, is because he said the, the pulpits have gotten soft and, and ministers are afraid to say it. Hey, listen, if you live in a, you, if you have a mega church and you have a 10,000 seat auditorium and you got a, you got a, a mega church and a mega mortgage, you got to be careful what you say because you can get a mega lot of people offended. And then all of a sudden, you're stuck with the mega mortgage, right? And, and so you, you have to tailor. I mean, these are businesses now. They're not churches so much. They're, they're enterprises that, that are designed to, to stimulate a lot of financial growth and all the other things that go on. And so you had to be in a situation like that. You had to be careful. Nowadays, you know, customer service is a big thing, right? And, you know, you got people falling all over, all over you even when you're wrong. And you got people falling all over you, all over you, and you know they're trying to make you happy so that you come back because they don't want to lose business. And I mean that's the nature of business. Let me tell you, the gospel is not, uh, you know, a public service service. The gospel is not customer service. The gospel is based on truth, and truth very often is not the most attractive thing. And even though culture veers away from truth and culture redefines what they believe to be as truth or what's important, let me tell you, that doesn't, that doesn't make it biblical automatically. 
And, and you've got to hold that distinction before your children and your family continually because it, it doesn't matter whether it's culturally correct. If it's truth, it's truth. And we have to say it that way. And, and let me tell you, we of all generations, we have had the example of somebody like Brother Branham who stood there with all the denominational people around him and all the Trinitarians around him and all the people who held different views about from everything from cutting their hair and how they dressed and how they watched, uh, you know, I Love Lucy and all the other things that were going on. And Brother Branham held to the truth and held to the truth and he held to the truth and he held to the truth all the way to the very end of his ministry. And you got to hand it to him for that. you got to commend him for that because he, 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 he didn't veer away, he didn't shy away from telling the truth even in the face of people who would, he knew would not agree with him. And I'm sorry if that's not popular, and I'm not trying to be unpopular, but I'm just saying that my commission is to give you the whole counsel of God, not what is going to help get you back next Sunday and and, and make you write another tithe check. I would would be doing you a disservice if that was my motive uh, in preaching the gospel here, but my job is to give you the full counsel of God because that's what the Scripture says I'm supposed to do. To give it to you in season and out of season. In other words, the Greek means to tell the people when they want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it. And to not shy away from it, but, you know, to be honest and rightly divide the word of truth and so forth. And put priority on the right things and follow the leading of God and not the leading of the season and not the leading of the culture and not the leading of the people even. But rather to follow the leading of the Lord and minister those things that are truth because that's the best thing that's going to help you. That's the thing that's going to edify you. And if I got my understanding right, that's what's going to get you through the doors of glory when the bride is translated and taken off the face of the earth. It's not making you feel good is going to get you there. It's truth that's going to get you there. Because the truth sets you free. And I believe the truth can be preached in such a way that it will even free you from this natural body that you're living in and transport you into glory. And that's what God wants you to do is to get out of here because he's got judgment all piled up, heaped up, waiting to pour out and vent on this earth. But he doesn't want you here when that happens. He wants you in another place. He wants you in a safe place when that happens. And glory to God, that's what's happening right now is God preparing us. And I believe one day it'll happen with such intensity. And we'll be, all of us, uh, I believe that over time, God will turn us into the men and women that he wants to capture and hold, lock in, and have us throughout all eternity. People who are willing to forgive. People who are willing to let go. People who are willing to resolve differences. People who are willing to embrace the truth and stand for it, even if it shucks the hide off them. I believe that's what God's looking for in every one of us. <clears throat> but the culture says, no, we've got to pursue what feels good. We've got to pursue what's right to us. We have to deal with situational ethics. In other words, I've got to figure out in this situation, is this right for me? And if it is, you know what? Then it is right. It doesn't necessarily make it right. I talked to a girl one time, and, and she was not a believer. She was not a Christian and she was explaining to my wife and I years ago how that she was going planning to go have a baby. She wasn't married. She didn't have a boyfriend, but she wanted to have a baby because 
that her, uh, her family had broken up and she had nobody in the world. She felt like she had nobody in the world. So she wanted to have a baby so she could have somebody her own. She wanted to be able to look after a child and be able to have like kind of like a family on her own. So she was just going to go find a man, a man and have a baby. and uh, Not interested in marriage, not interested in setting up a home like normal, but, but she just wanted to have this. And this was because this was her situation. This is what she felt was absolutely right for her. That's what situational ethics is. Now you can see where that leads when everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And that's where culture, culture doesn't, and the society and the government and the school system doesn't stop that and say, hey, hey, you might want to think about that, sister. No, the government would provide her a paycheck for doing it. Right? And so you, naturally then you have a, a, a twisting of minds that goes on. But Satan's good at that, and he's good at starting small and working his way to where we find ourselves today. I'm, I know I'm not shocking you. I mean, we, we've lived in this, we lived in this turmoil, and we lived in this to where it's all falling apart, and we're just seeing what a falling apart world really looks like. So the idea is, is that this foundation is what a building rests upon. Foundations are not really pretty. Foundations are not always glamorous, right? You did not come into the church today and, and, and you know, just look down at the floor and say, thank you for being there. I appreciate you being there. When you go into a really nice building, when you go into the Biltmore and you look around, you look at the grandeur of the house, not the foundation that it's built upon, unless you go downstairs. In the foundational vision, being newly married and poor was common, expected, and difficult, but often temporary. In the capstone standard, being poor is a sign that you're just not marriage material yet. This girl, a 28-year-old unmarried Pentecostal from Lagos, Nigeria, was clear about the conditions under which she would marry. And when I have everything I want, when I am able to achieve everything I want to achieve for myself, then I will get married. Now, her mindset is not really a lot different from people who believe in this foundation capstone theory. Another 24-year-old unmarried woman from Lagos concurred, and these are Pentecostal people, and she said, oh, please, she said laughing, I can't marry and suffer. So their vision of marriage is quite different than how, uh, how maybe we would look at things and how it would be traditionally interpreted. And as we're wringing our hands over the flight from marriage, one insight that hasn't received attention is that fewer and fewer people are interested in participating in what marriage actually is. Now, this is not a change in marriage. This is a flight from the traditional idea of marriage. And this is what they're flagging. This is what they're describing in this article. And while most people marry with affection, as they should, marriage, when you observe it across time and place, still concerns the mutual provision and transfer of resources within a formalized sexual union. So there are things that, there are things that I don't have that I know my wife has, and there are things that my wife does not have that I have. And then God bringing us together brings us back to the whole person that we need to be. That's what marriage is intended to do. It's intended to meet needs, isn't it? Meet the need for fellowship, because it's hard to have fellowship with just yourself. And it's intended to supply love, and it's intended to uh, cause children to come into the world, and all the other parts of marriage that are there, which are impossible to do by yourself. They're also impossible to do in a, in a homosexual marriage, right? There's one way that's provided by God. 
And God allowed it to be that way. And, and, and people will turn this into all kinds of different, uh, different things. Matrimony has long depended on an exchange based on inequality. In other words, there are things that, uh, that I lack that I know my wife has. And she's a more, much more of a detailed person than I am. I'm a general kind of a guy. And, uh, you know, uh, I'll go into a room and, and she'll say, uh, wow, did you see that couple over there? And, and I, I'm like, oh, I didn't see the couple at all. Did you see how they were, uh, how they were acting towards one another? I, I didn't even see them at all. Go back into the room and get distracted and look at someone else and go back out and say, oh yeah, I, was, I meant to go in and find that couple. By then they're gone. You know, I, I'm just, I'm just a general kind of a guy. She's much more specific and, uh, you know, looks very carefully at things. And between us, we have a, a, a good balance when it comes to things and getting things done. Now, <clears throat> Despite the fact that our culture, despite the fact that our world has changed when it comes to these things, it does not, it does not in a sense give us permission at all to veer away from the way that God intended things in the beginning. And so I want to just, I want to just drop back for a little bit here and, and just say this, that from the very beginning, God was pleased to make man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Not any other creature, not any other creature was made like a man was. Despite people's belief in, in, in uh, evolution, uh, there is no cow that's made in the image of God. Right? No horse that's made in the image of God. There's only one part of the creation that's made in the image of God, and that's a man. And so when you, I, I need you to think about this and get this in your mind, that... Uh, if you like, Adam was kind of like a mirror. He's a, he's a mirror standing there. And when God stood in front of that mirror, he saw his own reflection. He saw his own image. Because Adam was made in the image of God. So whatever Adam was, was a reflection of his creator. I've said many times before, it's interesting that when, when God looked in the mirror, he didn't see three. He only saw one. And, and Adam, in a sense, is a reflector of what it is that's in front of him. He's got a, he's got a, uh, his true identity, if you like, and fatherhood and identity are really inter- interconnected. When you, hopefully we'll, we'll agree with that a little bit more, but there is, there is a, an expression of Adam's identity by who's standing in front of the mirror. When Adam, when Adam's standing there, he's a reflection of, of God. He's a reflection of his maker. And this is, this is Adam's image, if you like. Uh, this is, this is a, a reflection of who Adam is. Is who's, who's, who's standing in front of that mirror. And, and we know that, uh, Adam is reflecting the qualities of the, of the one who made him and caused him to stand there in the first place. Now that's the way that God created Adam. In the very beginning, God was pleased to make him in that, in that image. And no amount of time has, has altered that. That's what God intended to do. And man has been producing offspring in his image ever since. Because the likeness of a man is reproduced as he has children. Right? His, his children are a reflection of him. 
So his children, in a sense, they become mirrors as well. And, uh, you know, I, you, you never knew my father, but if I go back up into Newfoundland and I get around some of my older relatives, they'll say, oh, you're the spitting image of Frank. You look just like Frank. You act just like Frank, which is a very scary thing. But they'll say, well, you just, you know, it could be Frank standing there in front of me. And uh, it, 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 you, you, have so many, you have so many qualities, you have so many attributes, that it looks like Frank. And, and, and it's because that I've been created in my father's image, if you like, with, through my mother. You know, God didn't have a, a partner, right, when he created Adam. So therefore, Adam was, was in a sense of a complete reflection of God. But in the natural now, we know it takes a man and a woman, right? After the fall, we know that it takes a man and a woman. So we've got a mixture of things there in that person, and they'll display qualities. But for sure, uh, I mean, when you, when you look at, um, when, if you look at me or you look at my boys, you'll see qualities of myself that are reflected in them. I didn't plan that. I didn't plan that. But they came forth, in a sense, in my image. They got a bit of Sister Becky in there, uh, obviously, and they've got, you know, Grandpa, Grandpa on both sides, Grandma on both sides. They got have those qualities there. It's just amazing how some of those qualities show up. They pop up every now and then. But they have, they have natural qualities because we've been creating, uh, we've been creating offspring in our image for a long time. You say, Brother Barry, what are you talking about? In Genesis 5 and 3, Adam lived 130 years and he begot a son in his own likeness after his image. This is not God creating Seth. This is Adam creating Seth in his image. And so it's been happening ever since. Are we okay? And I will tell you something that God wanted to create. If God created Adam the way he did and created him in his own image, God wanted to continue to create mankind just like that in his own image. With a man reflecting God's qualities because God's standing in front of Adam and God is his creator and God wanted to create man just like that. But you know what happened? The fall came. That's not news to you, but the fall came. And when the fall came, now there was another one who got in between God and that image there and marred that image with a false nature or a perverted nature. How many would agree? So now, this man, even though, even though he was, all life comes from God, he's got another perverter who's in here, and now all of a sudden he's reflecting from a babe, he's reflecting how to lie, how to steal, how to, uh, uh, you know, how to be rebellious, right? Where did he get that from? He got that from his spiritual father, or from the nature of Satan himself, and that's right there because of the act of creation. Nobody took the baby aside and injected it. Nobody took the baby aside and sent it to pervert school. Nobody did that. It's just inherent in the nature because the birth that we came in in this life is not ordained by God, right? It's, it's, it's the cur- it's the fall. It's the cur- Are you with me? So now we are born with a fallen nature and we are reflecting another nature altogether. We are standing in the image of our Father. Until we're converted. And once you're converted, then guess what? Jesus Christ, the Savior, comes in, elbows Satan out of the way. And now all of a sudden we have a new man in Christ. I'm I'm paraphrasing something very simply, very short here. 
Now all of a sudden a man becomes a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. And behold, all things become new. Brother Bram said this is just a negative. He says you're waiting for it to, to be developed someday. And death is only a thing that, the only thing that can develop it. And when you die out to yourself, a new picture starts on the inside. When a person is born again, something new begins on the inside. Glory to God. Somebody say amen. When you die out to yourself, when a person's born again, there is a new creature that begins on the inside. And you know what? If you put Christ in front of you, you're going to develop, you're going to show, you're going to reflect the characteristics of the one standing in front of the mirror. Hey, if you put a TV in front of you, you're going to reflect that. If you put a drug addict in front of that, you're going to, you're going to reflect those attributes. If you put bad friends in front of yourself, you're going to reflect that. You're a mirror and you're going to reflect whatever it is that's in front of you. That's why David said, I set him before me all times. I set the Lord before me. Now, <clears throat> Brother Branham says now the father and the mother he said constantly their son would not turn out, they would be praying that their son would not just turn out an ordinary man, but be an extraordinary man. All parents want that. And he said Jesus refers to that, honor thy father and thy mother. And that's the ambition of any parent to do the best for their children, educate them, give them things, and maybe they wasn't able to get it. And that's the way I feel about my children. And I think... In going back to school, Becky and Sarah and Joseph into those high schools and things, where all that's going on is that, hey, this is 1963. And he says, I'll take them back into the mountain and raise them up like Indians live. But here's what it is. All right, stop for a moment. If isolation was the answer, then we all would do well to be isolated completely from this world and go live in Montana in a hole in the ground and buy lots of powdered potatoes and live there, right? If isolation was the answer. But he says, but here's what it is. What's in the kid is going to come out. No matter where it is, it's going to come out. So atmosphere is important. We know atmosphere is important, right? But, but in reality, at the end of the day, whatever is inside you is going to come out. So if you're, if you're born of your parents only naturally, then the qualities of your parents are going to come out naturally. That's what's going to be reflected into the world is the nature of your parents because that's what's in you. But Brother Branham is, is letting us know here that if there's something else that's in there, if there's a gene of God in there, if there's a son of God in there, he says, and that also is going to reflect itself and come out into this world. It's going to reflect itself in this world. And that's what a believer is, is somebody who reflects the belief and obedience to the word of God when it's spoken. Sheep hear my voice. No matter where it is, it's going to come out. If it's evil in there, it'll come out in the Indian camp. If it's good in there, it'll come out in the Indian camp. You know why? Because children are just reflectors. They're just reflectors. Now, if there's a disease there, you know, and there's, there's, or there's some sort of a, you know, an extraordinary circumstance that, that mars that child, that's a little bit different. If there's abuse there, you know, something that's, that's pressed upon them, uh, th- those circumstances often, you know, create a different scenario. But I'm just saying that uh, under normal circumstance, the way that you were born in this earth, you're going to reflect a fallen nature because that's the way that you were born. Is everybody following me? Make a motion of some sort. <clears throat> but if you are born of God, if you're born of the word incorruptible, you're going to re- reflect an obedience to the word of God. And that's what God's looking for. If it's good in there, it'll come out. If it's bad in there, that's what's going to come out. It's what's in the kid, the makeup of the kid. It's what's inside of you. 
Well, let me say this, and you've got to be clear about this. It's not up to the kid. Right? Because remember now, in the predestinated, God placed something in you from before the foundation of the world. So that's what we're looking for. It wasn't, it wasn't for the woman at the well to get her life right and then come to Jesus. Jesus found what God placed in her. And I will tell you something. God did not, Jesus did not come into this world to make bad people good. He rather came to make dead people live. I said, Jesus didn't come into this world to make bad people good. But rather, he came in to make dead people live. And so he went to the woman at the well in the condition that she was in and quickened that which God had placed in her. It wasn't up to her. It was up to God finding her and speaking the right thing that brought her to life. And then she expressed the attribute and the nature of Christ herself. It's what lays in the kid. It's not the kid. It's what lays in the kid. Are you with me? That's where predestination is all about. This is how this works. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you a little story. And you talk about what's in somebody. Because you have to think about this. Can, can God can God actually make a good father or a good parent out of a broken piece of material? Out of a broken something? Can God take the, the qualities of, of fatherhood and motherhood out of, out of that, that person? I, I wrote some of my boys recently and I was just telling them that you know, I, I, I appreciated their, the qualities, some of the qualities of, of fatherhood and, and husbandry that was laid in them. Uh, and and they, they have manifested and shown. And, and I said, I would never know that except that in my life God had placed an image of a real mother in front of me over my years. And I never really appreciated my mother until many years later when I was a, had, had kids and kids driving me crazy. And, and uh, you know, uh, you're trying to be the best parent you can. You realize, wow, what would mom do or what would dad do in, in a situation like this? And one day I was on my knees and it was just another situation that was going on in the church. And I called up my mother on the phone and I said, I just want to thank you for being a real mother. And I said, you know, I... I, I thank God because God's given me a, a wife who reflects the qualities of motherhood. And I never even really, I'd never recognized that except that God had put the Im, your image in front of me over all those years. And now when I look back, I realize, wow, that was God ordained. That was a blessing of God to have my mother stand before me like that and exhibit the qualities that she did. And I said, now God, by his grace, allowed me to marry a woman who reflects the same kind of characteristics. I said, I just want to thank you for that. I, that's all I did. I wanted to call her up and thank her for that. Because I said I, I never would, would know what a real woman was except that God had given me a, a mother like you. And she kind of didn't know what to say because that was the one and only compliment I think I got to formally pay her in all my life. You know, we were just guys, you know, and didn't think about things like that. But it struck me one time that, you know, God gave me a, a wonderful wife and a mother, you know, for, of my children. And how would I know that? But God had given me a great mother that... that uh, that I had grown up under. My mother wasn't perfect. She wasn't perfect. And neither are you. But the pattern that God gave us to pattern after is perfect. Because the pattern is God. Now let me just illustrate it this way. That if, if you have a, a, a bolt of material and there's a flaw in that material... And you lay it on your pattern. No matter how good you can sew, no matter how good you can cut, if that, if that 
flaw is showing, then it's all, you're always going to be reminded that there's a flaw there. Right? But it's not the pattern's fault. Because the pattern is perfect. And in our case, the pattern is perfect because it's Father God. And, and so, here we are as flawed human beings, and we're, we're, we're laid on a pattern of how learning how God would father in the Scripture. And He's cutting around us and shaping us and molding us. But you know, every time we look in the mirror, we see the flaws, don't we? We look at our past. And some of us are pulled by the gravitational pull of our past into a place of being defeated all the time instead of rejoicing over the things that God has made available for us. Shame on us if we don't take advantage of, uh, of our relationship with Father God that He's... He's made for us because, you know, if you had a if you had a real father, I I I I appreciate my boys and like I've said to you before, I I just we have a special relationship and all of them are unique and I I will tell you this that I can put a big red sign on that door right there and say, you know, nobody come in there 30 minutes before service, nobody don't disturb the pastor 30 minutes before service, don't anybody do it. All of you folks would would be sensitive to that and uh, I I know you would respect that. My boys would come right in and say, hey dad, got a question. And they wouldn't hesitate at all just because, hey, uh, you know, they're just, they're, we just have that kind of a relationship. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's just the way they are. That's just the way my guys are. <clears throat> that's not a bad quality. That's a good quality. But I will tell you this, in every one of us there are flaws. Now let me tell you a little story about a flaw. The other day I was down in my uh, basement and I... Uh, I had, have a, I was working in the house and there was a plumber, had a little leak upstairs and, uh, in a shower, just things that kind of work loose after 18, 20 years, you, you figure out where the flaws are, uh, in your plumbing. And, uh, so we had a little leak there and the leak worked its way down, came down through and in the kitchen ceiling there's a little, uh, water coming down. I said, that's not right. That's not right. I don't know a lot, but I know that that's not right. So uh, I got the plumber, and we started to backtrack, and we went up through, and sure enough, in the, in the, there was a problem in the shower up there, and it was leaking down through. It just runs down the wall, and then the pipe comes out in the lowest place, and there it is. So while he's there upstairs, I go downstairs because I'm doing something else, and I go down, and all of a sudden, I'm standing in front of a, uh, I'm standing at a spot in the basement, and I'm standing in splash, splash. This ain't right. I don't know a lot, but I know that this ain't right. There's no pipes. There's no, there's no bathrooms above me. There's no plumbing above me. And I'm just, this ain't right. And I'm looking all around. And I'm searching all around and trying to find where the, where's the water coming from. And things are, the more I look, the more there's water all around the floor. And I, so I went up and got the plumber. I happened to be there. I went up and got the plumber and I said, come down. I said, I understand this. I don't understand this. Can you come down? And I said, I'm looking for a source of water down here. And <laughs> I'm looking down and he just goes like this. He looks up. And he says, what's that? And I said, what's what? He shined his flashlight and there's a big, in the corner of the room, there's a big, over here, there's a big black spot on the ceiling. Mold. And I said, I didn't see that. And he walked over and he said, you move this stuff around. And he said, he said, you should go over and take a look at that. He said, that's probably your source of the water. And I said, but I'm standing over here. He said, just go over and take a look at that. So I went over and I took a garbage can with me and I took my drill and I just drilled a hole up in the sheetrock there and the water and all the junk and everything all flowed out of the ceiling there. 
I wrenched up with my hand and just pulled it a little bit, and the whole ceiling came down into the bucket. I say, honey, lock the doors. Don't let any of the boys out. Send them down with their old clothes. I know what this means. So we were pulling the ceiling down and pulling it down and so forth. And I looked up and finally there's, there's a, a, little, a little tiny pipe. It's a three-eighths copper pipe. And it's running across the length of the ceiling. And in the, right in the middle of it, nowhere, there's no taps, there's nothing else. In the middle of it, there's a little drip, 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 drip. Nothing above it is wet. Everything below it is wet. It had run down, ruined all the ceiling and all the walls and stuff, and finally ran down. There was so much water, ran down and came out and pooled in another place in the basement over here. And I'm standing up. I lift up the floor that's there, and it's all, you know, multicolored, we'll say, and all wet underneath there and so forth. And I look at that, and I said, that's just amazing. I said, it's just a little flaw up there. And I, so I, had, I got the plumber down. He happened to be here. And I said, hey, explain this to me. How does, how does that happen? How do you get a, in the middle of a pipe, how do you get a, he said, it could be a little flaw that's carried over from the factory. He says, whenever they made this pipe. And he said, just a little chemical reaction, the water flowing through it all these years. And he said, just eats its way through that copper and creates a little hole. And finally, uh, you know, pops through and the water, water begins to come out. And I said, that can happen to any copper pipe. And he said, yeah. I said, so you mean that could happen anywhere else in this house too? And he just looked at me like this and he said, good luck. He said that's why people, when they redo their house, they oftentimes pull out the copper and they'll put the pecs in there and, and uh, the, the new stuff and, and uh, do it differently and get it in there. Uh, let me tell you something. The, the, the pipe was hidden. <clears throat> the pipe is not visible, but it's got a flaw. Now, I, I, I just want to, I just want to say this. Well, let me finish the story, all right? Cause I know when I go home, people say, well, what happened? Well, he does, he took him five minutes. He went zip, zip, cut that piece out, put in a piece of pecs, and he's done. That's, I said, that's it? He said, that's it. Until the next one. And, uh, he said, now you gotta, you gotta pull all this out. You gotta repair it. You gotta take all the stuff out. And so we did it. And so, uh, I figured, wow, this is bigger than what I'm able to do. So we're going to call the insurance. The insurance guy comes in and all of a sudden, you know, there's hunt, there's thousands of dollars worth of repair at the Inzaguan because they're going to repair the floor. Well, the floor happens to cover the whole basement. So, you know, they, and now they got a, a company in to help pack it all up and, you know, do it all. And I mean, it's just, it's just uh, an amazing thing. Just an amazing thing. How, how a little flaw like that. That will cause. Just sitting there all those years. Now let me tell you something, sisters. When you marry a guy, you, you, you can't see that little flaw that's there hiding. You think he's great. Because you know what you're doing? You're, you're doing what all of us do as we look at the outside. You look at the outside of my house, you think, wow, hey, nice landscaping. Somebody came into our house the other day and they said, you know, when, we, when we finish our house, we want our landscaping to look just like this. And here I am slugging out moldy sheetrock out of the basement here. Because they're not looking at the inside, they're looking at the outside. Come on. And a lot of times we even, as Americans, we like to fix the outside of things, right? We like to make things look really nice. And, and, and you know, our infrastructure in our country is falling apart. We have a bridge up our way, crosses the interstate, which crosses a river. And a guy who works for the, for the highways, he told me, he said, he said, if you knew the shape of that bridge, you'd never drive that bridge again. You'd never do it. 
He said it's already shifting. And when they get all those big trucks on there in the winter and all of a sudden, Sister Jackie, she knows where it is. And, and uh, you, he said you'd never drive on that bridge. And then recently they, they said they were going to replace it. You know, it was the highest priority and one of the highest priorities in the state of Virginia to fix that bridge. And here we are driving over it. And you know what? When you, got, when you cross over a bridge, you don't generally stop and say, if you don't mind, I'm going to check this out before I go over. All right? If you don't mind. Everybody, do you mind just hanging on a sec? I'd like to check out the foundation of this bridge here and go down and look at it with a flashlight. You don't do that. And a lot of times when we, uh, you know, when we, we marry somebody, we're looking at the landscaping. We ain't checking the pipes. But you know what you're going to do when you get married? You're going to marry pipes and all. Hello? You're going to marry the whole thing. You're going to marry the plumbing. You're going to marry the electrical. You're going to marry the roof, right? You're going to marry all of it. But a lot of times we look at the landscaping and we think, wow, he dresses nice. You know, combs his hair nice and everything else. And oh, it's, this is just really good. But you know what? We, we, we really don't know. And for a lot of, lot of us fellows, I will tell you something that it's important for us to, to recognize that none of us are perfect. And even though, you know, we, we have children, we have families, <clears throat> and we are, <clears throat> we are put in positions where we have responsibilities, God knows the flaws that lay in you. I said God knows the flaws that lay in you. And, and God knows the flaws that lay in you women as well. And the little bits of corrosion that are there and the little bits of uh, bitterness that are there and the little things that happen to you in life and the big things that happen to you in life. And if we're not careful and give them to, to Jesus the right way, they can become problems down the road. They can become issues down the road that you're going to have to deal with whether you like it or not. And even if you knew it was there or not. But God knows exactly what lays inside of every one of us. He absolutely does. Now, <clears throat> I'd like to say this, that, uh, you know, you, you take a, a fellow like Jacob, you know, in, in the Scripture, and, and Jacob is a shyster. He's, you know, his name means cheater or deceiver, shyster. And, and yet he, he birthed, you know, the sons that became some of the greatest men of all the Scripture, and, you know, Joseph and Benjamin and all the rest of it. And, 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 and he, had, he had things in him. That despite the fact that they were there, God still chose him as a son, a grandson of Father Abraham. And then a son of Isaac. And God chose him to birth these sons into the world and, and, and bring him in. And he's got, you know, he's got a potential father-in-law, Laban, who's also a shyster. In other words, his wife is, is going to have some of these genes in him too. So you can imagine, you know, the sons of Jacob, they, some of the reasons why they, they are the way they were was because they are made in the image of their fathers. Hello? And so there's all kinds of plumbing issues there, right? But yet God knew that, didn't He? And I think it's a great consolation to us to know that, you know, despite our flaws and despite, like Brother Man said, there's, there's, if there's evil in there, it's going to come out. If, if there's problems in there, they're, they're going to come out. The best thing we can do is when we find those things, we surrender them to Christ and say, Lord, just let the blood of Christ wash over those things. And I, I know I'm not perfect and I know I don't get everything right, but I know I have resources. I have a great, uh, I have a great repair. I have a great restorer that I know that I can turn to and cast my cares upon. And he can heal me of this and heal me of this. And as He heals me, he's also, re- uh, he's also allowing my children to see that in me as well. To see that repair and that restoration as well. <clears throat> it's not always pretty. 
It's not always nice. I don't know whether you know it or not, but in, in 1788 in Malden, Massachusetts, the very first missionary that America ever had was birthed there. And his name was Adonai Judson. Adonira Judson. And Adonira Judson, Judson was a, an unusual young man. At nine years old, he was so enamored with the scripture that he taught his Sunday school class the entire book of Revelation because he had practically memorized it all. He was just an outstanding young man. They say he was intellectually, they say he was absolutely just a brilliant young man. And he went to uh, Malden College, which back then was the school to go to. And, and uh, back then those guys went to college in, in 14, 15, 16 years old. They had learned Latin and Greek and, and history and science and so forth. They'd already done that and then went to college. And uh, Adonair Judson had gotten in tow with a young man who was his roommate. And this fellow was, was named Jacob Ames. And Ames was a strong enough influence on Adonair Judson that uh, even though a lot of people had expectations for Judson over, over his, uh, you know, when he graduated and that he would, you know, maybe be a pastor and take over some of the great churches there in the, in the time of Jonathan Edwards and so forth. This, this Ames fellow had an influence on, on Adonair Judson and took him away from the gospel so that Adonair Judson wanted to become an actor. And so when he graduated from school and everybody had expectations about what he would be, then um, uh, Adoniram Judson went off to, uh, off, off to a theatrical school in Boston, and he, uh, he wanted to learn to be an actor. He was not interested in the things of God at all, and this was the path that he was on early in life. And then one time he was coming back, he was near his hometown, but it was too far to travel at night, and he stopped by an inn. And he asked the innkeeper, could he have a room? And he said, I, just, I don't have any space left. He said, you're going to have to go on. There's another inn so many miles down the road. And he says, I don't have any room here. He says, listen, I'll pay whatever is necessary. He said, I, I can't go any further. I'm tired. I just want to stay. So Judson finally convinced, convinced the innkeeper. He said to, to give him a room. He said, listen, the only room I got is one next to a man down the hall. And he said, he's very sick. They think he's terminal. And we don't know what he has. The doctor can't figure it out. But he's in horrible pain, and he cries out, and he swears and curses, and he's crying out all night and all day. And they said the smell from his body is just horrifying, and they can't do anything about it. And he's just in that room day and night. And he said, we've kept the room next to it empty because nobody wants to stay there overnight. Judson said, I'll, I'll take it. He paid him the money. He said, I'll, he, he, he took the room. And when he did, uh, he, was, he uh, worked around for a while and finally worked himself to sleep. And then in the morning, he got up and he said, I never heard hardly anything last night. And he said, uh, the man must have just went off to sleep. And the innkeeper said, no, he died. He said, he died. And he said, we, we're trying to figure out, for a long time, we're trying to figure out who this person was. We didn't, we didn't really know. We didn't have any identity for him. And he said, we, we finally tracked back and somebody figured out who he was, that he was actually from uh, this, this college up the road, Malden College. And he said, we, we found out that his name was Jacob Ames, and, and uh, he said he died of this disease and are taking him off now back to his family to be, to be buried. And Judson said, what did you say his name was? And he said, Jacob Ames. And Judson was shocked by this to the point where he got back up on his horse and he was going to head towards his hometown. And he said, with every beat of the hoofs of his horse, he only heard two words, death and hell, death 
and hell and death and hell with the, with the steps of his horse. And he got down off his horse after a while and, and uh, completely surrendered his life to Christ and, and uh, made a turn at that particular point in his life. And from there, he had it on his heart, he wanted to go be a missionary in India. And he went to India, and the authorities over there refused him. They, didn't, they denied him entry to come into the country. So he said, well, the next closest thing is to go to Burma. And so he went to Burma. And when he did, his wife contracted a disease right away, and she died. Now, of sheer loneliness, a couple of years later, he married again, and that wife died. By this time, he had a couple of children, and he married a third wife who was a Thai, Taiwanese person. And persecution had come in the land of Burma, and, and Judson's whole thrust, his whole burden, was to translate the Bible into, uh, into Burmese. And so he had done that, but, but because the authorities had changed their mind about Christianity, they threw him in jail and threw his wife in jail because she was translating the Bible in the, the Thai language. And she was pregnant with their first child. And Judson was so beat down by this and so distraught by this and so defeated by all of this that he was left in the prison there. They, they allowed his, they knew he wasn't going to live very long, so they, they allowed his uh, wife to come out of her prison cell and bring the newborn baby over to Judson so he could reach his hand through the, 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 the gates, the uh, bars of the prison door, and just reach down and touch the face of his baby. And that's all that he got to, to share with his baby. And so eventually the authorities figured that he was not going to live, and so they, they decided to take him out of prison and wrap him up and put him on a boat that was headed for America, but he never made it to America. And he died, and they buried him at sea. And in Malden, Massachusetts, there's a, a, grave mar- there's a marker, there's a plaque on his house, <clears throat> and it says this is the home of Adonira Judson, born in 1788 and died in 1850. Malden was his birthplace. The ocean was his sepulcher. The converted Burmese are his monument. And his record is kept on high in heaven. Here's God taking a man who obviously had flaws. I mean, in, in his early days had turned completely away from God and attempted to turn other people away from God. But then all of a sudden, God has his ways of getting back, uh, getting a person back and restoring that person into the, uh, into the work and into the, in, into the light that he's supposed to be in. Let me tell you something, say to God, that's what the grace of God is all about. To be able to take a man who's got flaws and to be able to use him for the kingdom and to be able to use him to display the attributes or the image of God in a world, even in a heathen part of the world, that's the grace of God that allows that to be done. That's the grace of God that allows you and I to be able to press forward even though we have all kinds of flaws and we have mistakes and we have pride and we have, uh, you know, memories and we have a past and we have all of that. But yet God will take that and He will bind, He will bind our wounds and He will pour in the oil and allow us to be able to continue and carry on. I gotta tell you one more story before I close here. That the job of fatherhood is not always a pretty thing. It's not always an attractive thing. And you forgive me here because I have more of the, the, the doctrinal side of things here. But I just feel pulled in this direction here. So just bear with me just another few moments. And I, I've mentioned this character before. And I've done it before in different uh, times we talked about family. 
Specific times we talked about family. But there was a, a season where our, our boys were in 4-H and they were, um, we, we, the reason we joined the 4-H in the first place was only because they had a horse group. And we didn't have a horse. I, I, I don't know anything about horses. I, I never owned a horse. I don't even know which side is the hairiest side of a horse. I don't know whether you do or not. And I, I, I told my wife and the boys, I said, you guys can have a horse. But I said, I don't know anything about a horse. I don't know, I don't know the front end of one for the back end of one. And I said, I just, you, you can have it. You can deal with it. I'll build your barn, but you guys, you guys got to look after it. And they were, yeah, yeah. So pretty soon our in-laws ride up and they have a trailer and they got a, they, they come out with Champion. His name was Champion, the Welsh racking pony. And, um, they just thought this would be really great. You know how grandparents are with their, grandchildren, right? They just thought this would be the best thing for these boys. And so out comes champion and I'm looking at this thing and I say, you're on your own, buddy. You're on your own. And uh, so the boys, they, they just fall in love with champion, you know, and they're, they're going to the 4-H shows with him. And uh, lo and behold, champion was already trained. He already, he'd come from a family who understood uh, barrels and he understood uh, you know, showmanship, and he understood how to stand and how to how to pose for pitchers and all that. He loved it, loved it. Loved it. The boys didn't have to train him; they just had to get on and hold on. If they held on for the program, they'd probably win. Because no, normally, normally in most of our competitions, there was only one pony that entered the the program. All kinds of quarter horses, but there was only one program. So our boys won all kinds of trophies. It was great. I mean, it was great. We have lots of pictures of, uh, you know, the boys sitting on the, on the horse, you know, getting their pictures made with their cowboy hats and, and, uh, send them to grandma, of course. And, and, uh, it was, it was, we had a lot of fun, had a lot of fun over those years. And I learned a lot about horses. And now I know which is the hairiest side of a horse. I can tell you after service. But there was in those competitions, and I remember this very, very clearly, and my boys will recall this, but I remember there was a, a father who was there with his son, and he came every time, had a trailer just like ours, an old red trailer, and he'd come and he'd bring his horse, and he pulled it into the yard, and he'd get that horse out, and his son Danny would get out of the truck, and Danny was mentally handicapped. He had Down syndrome. And Danny would get out of the horse, out of the truck like this, and he'd be all all decked out with his new cowboy shirt and his boots all polished and his hat. And he just, he'd walk like this. I could still see him. He'd be so proud. Nobody'd be around, but he'd be, he'd be just, he'd be standing by the trailer. And he couldn't look after the horse. His dad had to look after the horse. His name was Danny Calamanis. Danny would stand there like this, just beaming, just so proud, you know, of his outfit. And, and he'd stand there and his father would get out and park the truck and unhook the trailer and open it up and take the horse out. Get the saddle on, get the bridle on, and all the rest of it, you know, he'd be working the horse. And, and then he'd say, okay, Danny, it's time for our event. So he'd, he'd lead the horse over, and Danny would, for the crowd, Danny would be so proud. He'd just be kind of walking like this. And he didn't want to move any muscles at all because he didn't want to wrinkle his shirt. And he'd just, he'd just come over, and his father would help him. His father would get down on one knee like this, and he'd help him and, and hold on to Danny's boot and hoist him. He's a big fellow. Danny was a big guy. And uh, he, he'd get up on the saddle, and he'd have to strap him in. And Danny couldn't ride the horse himself. He had to have his father hold on to the reins. So when they wanted to do barrels, and they said, ready, set, go, uh, Danny would, he would just hold on to the reins. This is all he knew to do. But his father would take the, the front reins, and he would just run 
through the field. And he'd go around the barrel and go run the other one. And he'd run, run again and go three barrels and then he'd stop. And Danny would, he'd, he'd hold on to his, the reins like this. And he'd lean back and he'd just squeal. He'd be so happy, so excited as he's riding a horse. He just, you could hear him squealing the whole, uh, the whole park. And, and he was just so excited. And you know what? Every event that Danny was in, he'd win the first prize because he was the only handicapped boy who rode. And so he won these big trophies that were almost as big as him. And when it came to the winners, he'd be sitting there, and you know how they do it in a, in a cowboy event? They'd have some of the kids sit on the front row, and some of them would sit up on the back fence. And uh, Danny would sit there in the back fence, and he'd have his trophy, you know, big old trophy like this. It'd be over his head. And he'd be, he'd be sitting there on the fence like this with a big smile on his face. And, and uh, he'd show off his first place trophy. He had the ribbon. Oh, he was just so happy. And I'd look over, and here was his father over there by the trailer. And he's just he's sweating. And he's just taking the saddle off and wiping that horse down and giving it some water. And then he put it in the trailer. And he'd just wait on Danny until he came. And, and the thing about Mr. Calamanis, I never knew him very well. But I watched him all the time. The thing about him was that at the end of every event like that, he'd be covered in dust. Because as they rode through the, 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 the yard, what do you call it? The fairground. As he rode through the fairground with Danny, it's all dusty and, you know, dirt. And, and he'd be running through that in the hot weather and he'd be sweating and it'd be just dust everywhere. He'd be covered head to toe with dust. No matter what he was wearing, he always looked the same gray color. And he just had, the, you know, that, that look about him, and he'd take off his hat, and he'd bang it on his side like that, and all the dust would fly, and he'd put it back on his head again and wipe his face, and he'd put the horse in. And I often thought, I often thought, if there's ever, ever a picture of a real father, I always thought of Danny Calamanis' father. Because he got no trophies, he got no awards, He got no acclaim. I don't even know what his name is. Never heard. But Danny was the one who held the trophy up. Danny was the one who had the ribbon. He had his picture in the paper. Every time, every fair, Danny had his picture made. And he'd be the one who got the first place. And the father was, he was just, in a sense, he was an unsung hero in the whole scheme of things, in the whole picture. And I thought to myself, There's just something right about the way he does this. He doesn't doesn't come along and say to the judges, hey, I was the one who held the horse and I was the one who ran. I deserve some credit. He never, ever did that. He never sought anything for himself. He He just did it all so that his boy could participate and feel the excitement and win the trophy. Sounds touching. But you know what? It really made an impression on my life. It really did because I remember him even to this day and and I, we, have, we have a picture of him. I should have brought it. We, we have a picture of, of Dan and his father standing in the, in the ring like that. And I often, to myself, often go home at the end of the day and, you know, all of our boys, we get in the truck and load up our horse and go home. And I'd often thought, you know, if I, if I could, if I could, I'd like to have a, a heart like that, where he was so unselfish and just so giving to his son, that even though it made him look foolish 
And even though, you know, he, he, no one ever knew his name or anything else, he just, to me, he was a real father to his son. He was just a real man. And he loved his son a great deal. He never had to say that. He never had to announce that. He just did, and you could tell, and you could see it. And I just thought to myself, I'd love to be able to have other people look at me with my boys and say, wow, he really loves his boys. He really loves his grandchildren. I'd, I'd, like, I'd like them to reflect that in their lives. And the only way that they're going to reflect that is if I stand in front of them and model that. Because remember, they're the mirror. They're the mirror. And they're going to reflect whatever's standing in front of them. And so for me, if, if they're going to reflect that, I've got to model that. I've got to, I've got to express that. And, and they're the ones who are going to show that. And that's why the other day I was telling my boys, the ones who are married and have kids, and I thought, it's so great to see them be a father. Because that's, I said, without, without saying it, that's one of the greatest compliments you could pay me. We were talking about Father's Day. And I said, that's one of the greatest compliments you could pay me. Not that you ever have to say it, but when I see you reflecting fatherhood in the lives of your children, that means that you're reflecting what you saw someone else do. And I never had a father like that. I had a mother like that, but I never had a father like that. And so I realized that what I reflected to them is simply the grace of God and the effect of a new birth. It's not because I'm doing what my dad did, because I wouldn't want to do what my dad did, because I wouldn't want my boys to be drinkers. But if they're showing fatherhood, real fatherhood, then they're learning that from somewhere. And if they're getting it from me, it's because of Christ in me, not me. Are you getting the point? And I said, that's a great compliment to the grace of God. That's what amazing grace really is. Because I'm like a copper pipe. I got flaws. I got leaks about to happen. I got stuff that could go wrong any time. And I'm a, I mean, we all are, aren't we? You know, really, when you think about it. But for the grace of God. Because we're not like, a, we're not like an inanimate piece of copper now, but... We're people who have been redeemed by love divine. And God has taken us and said, I know who you are. I know what you're made of. I look underneath the sheetrock, and I see the plumbing, and I see all of it. And I just want you to know that I've chosen you anyway. And I've chosen you in the worst time people could live to establish moral values in their children. And I chose you because... You're going to believe even greater than death. You're going to believe above death. And all of these great things I've got in store for you. And yet I know what's underneath the sheetrock. I know what's behind there. I know what you're made of. And to me, that's what the amazing grace is. And that's the benefit. That's the benefit of being a seed gene of God, as he said. And you know what? There's no distancing me from my heavenly Father. There's nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. 
death, nor hell, nor fire, or flood, or anything else in Romans 8 that Paul talks about. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And I will say this to you fathers that are here. The best thing you can do is keep the word in front of you because you will reflect what it is that's in front of you. You're a mirror. And you, you reflect the word of God in your life. And you watch your boys, when they come up in your image, they'll be reflecting the Word of God in their lives as well. And they'll teach their children to reflect the Word of God in their lives. Because that's really where success is. Success is not in a bigger paycheck and a bigger deck. Success is not in more stuff. Success is when your children reflect the characteristics of Christ that you don't deserve. Let's stand to our feet. Danny Kalamanis' father. I, you know, I don't know where Danny is now. I, 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 I don't know if, even if he's still alive. I really don't know. But I know this, that if he, if he has any recollection of those days, I hope he goes back to his father and says, Dad, I appreciate you getting in the ring with me. I appreciate you not just treating me like I can't, a boy who can't do anything. I appreciate you treating me special. And all these trophies that I have on my wall and in my room, they're all reminders of not what, not what I did, but how much you love me. How far will a father go? How far will a husband go? How far will you go? That's why Brother Branham, he makes a simple statement, fatherhood is an attribute of God. It's of God. And, and you can see in the, just in, in the love that a real father will express to his children. It's, and then you start to think about the love that God expressed to us and the patience he has with us. And you know what? He didn't just send us here in the last day. He came and got in the ring with us. And when you can't drive your own horse... When you feel like it's too overwhelming, he gets in there and takes the reins and he runs those barrels for you. And then at the end of it, you know what? You get the crown. You're the one that gets the crown. You're the one that gets the new body. And you're the one that gets the place in heaven. And when we get there, it'll not be because we did it. It'll be because he stepped down out of glory and got in the ring with us and said, I'll do what you can't do. Amazing grace shall always be my song of praise. Let's sing it this morning. Amazing grace shall always be my song of praise. And it was grace that bought my life. I do not know just why he came to love me so, but he looked beyond my fault and he saw my name.
everybody now. I shout forever. Lift my eyes to
everything that you have need of today. If you're lost, He's a way maker. If you're lonely, He's a friend who sticks us closer than a brother. If you're weakened today, He is our strength. If you're a sinner, He's a Savior. And if you're sick, He's a healer. He is all of that today the same as He ever was. We believe that with all of our heart. We believe that he hasn't changed. He's still the same. Sing it one more time with me. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, you are more than. For me, Jehovah, Rapha. this morning that has a need and they'd like me to pray for them. I'd be glad to do that today. There's nothing that's too great for God. Nothing that's too difficult for God. He's able to take someone like Adonai or Judson and just know exactly where he is, know exactly what has to happen to turn him around. God is not one to just send his blessings down from on high, but he's one who gets in the ring with us takes the reins of the horse, takes, the, takes over in your life where you can't have any more control. He's that kind of a God. He's that kind of a Father. 
Shame on us if we don't take advantage of the relationship we have because he's our Heavenly Father. Yes, he's our bridegroom. He's our friend that sticks closer than a brother. But in being a father, he's a provider for us. And we need to draw strength from the things that he has, the great resources that he has in the times of need that we have. He is all of that to us. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. Oh, heal me, oh.
for God. We believe that. Now, I would like, in an ordinary circumstance, to have the whole church to join me in prayer, but we can't, obviously, because of our situation. But I'm going to ask the Pritchard family if they would come and just uh, surround us here today. Uh, All the Pritchards, if you would, just come on to the front here, and um, just want you to join us in faith and join us in prayer. Mike? Sister Anna has been dealing with a sickness, and we want to join our hearts together in prayer. And if you will um, pray with me from where you are, and uh, just believe that God is able, God's a healer, like we've been saying, like we've been singing. He's not a father who's way off in a distance somewhere and just sends a word down to us. He's, he's one who comes on the scene. He passes by best thing we can do is when we sense his presence to reach out, grab the hem of his garment take all the virtue that flows because we need it we need his strength, we need his virtue none of us are perfect we all have flaws we all have things in us that if we could we'd make them right some that's up behind the sheetrock and we don't know it's there little flaws and sometimes they have a way of showing themselves but you know what God's always, always able. That's for sure. He's always able. So as a family, this morning we're going to join our thoughts and prayers together now for Anna and Ethan. And just pray that God would specifically touch Anna and just give her strength. And I want you to to pray. And I want you to be real sincere now. And just to really pray and trust that the Lord will minister to our sister. Because we're just doing simply what the scripture tells us to do. If there's any sick, we should anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we believe that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We believe that. So let's believe now that God is not unmindful of this. But he's very mindful of right where we are, right where we stand today. Sister Ann, I want you to put your hand on this right here. This is a prayer cloth that Billy...
Father, we know that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that's too great for you, Jesus. Lord, there's nothing that overwhelms you. There's no request or petition, Lord, that, that, that is, is too great, Lord, for your ability to supply. We believe you're Jehovah Jireh. We believe you're Jehovah Rapha today, the healer, the same Lord. And I ask in Jesus' name now that you would just come on the sickness. As we stand against these sicknesses, Lord, that the enemy would try to bring. And Lord, how that he tries to pull us and draw us away, Lord, from the presence of God. But Lord, you are one who, you, you care, Lord, and you know all about what we go through and you know our tears. You know our suffering, you know our crime. You know, we know about what's going on in our hearts when no one else does. And Lord, sometimes we don't even understand what's going on in our hearts. Lord, you do. And Lord, we care tonight. And so we, we believe, Lord, that you care. And we, we come and cast our cares upon you because, Lord Jesus, you're able to be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. You're a gracious and loving high priest who's waiting to be called upon. Call into action, as your prophet says. And so we call upon you today, Lord, to come into action and to step into the ring, Lord, with Sister Anna. And Lord, just to help her right where she is. I commit her to you. And I pray in Jesus' name you would heal her and make her completely well. However you do it, Lord, is entirely up to you. But we know that all healing comes from God. And so we trust
had a communication from Brother Tim Pruitt this morning just before I came out in the pulpit here, and he said that, he said, I'm not really sure that we understand what's, what's happened here. He said, we as the family. But he said, a week ago, the doctor told me to prepare for my wife's death. He said, because we were doing brain surgery, and she had the bleed, and it was creating pressure and pushing in on the right side of her brain. And uh, he said, this morning when I called up to the hospital, because uh, he's, he's got restricted uh, access to the hospital, but he said when I called up to the hospital, he said a couple of days ago she couldn't put her, she couldn't sit up, she couldn't stay awake, she couldn't uh, do anything or say any words, and he said here she was today out at the nurses' station talking to the nurse who was giving her care, and he said I'm not sure we really understand or appreciate how great of a miracle this is, but he said a week ago the doctor's talking about death, and he said today you know she's up talking to the nurse at the station there and. He said, we're, we're just very thankful. And he said, that's the God we serve. And I'd like to echo that today and say that, you know, with God, all things are possible. We, we sometimes think that, you know, situations can't change or they can't be made right. I'm here to tell you that we serve a God who knows better than that. And uh, he's able today. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the great testimonies of your people, Lord, in this age and in other ages who have served you and put their faith and trust and confidence in you. And, Lord, you stepped into the ring. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for how you provide. Thank you, Lord, for being you. We're so grateful that we have a Father like you that we can turn to, no matter what we face. A Father who cares. A Father who doesn't remain distant and aloof, but one who gets involved in our affairs. In the name of Jesus now, I commit the people into your hands, Lord. Pray that you would strengthen them, bless them, bless their fellowship. Lord, protect them from disease. Protect them, Lord, from this virus that circulates. Pray you'd bless every dad, every father, grandfather who's here, great-grandfather. I pray, Lord, that you would bless every mom, every family. Because, Lord, we need your strength and we need your help. Raising children in a very dirty world. Come, I pray, and challenge us according to your word. We'll give you thanks and praise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Yes, thank you. Sing it as you go this morning. God bless you. Thank you.